everybody disagrees about what, what sort of outcomes you, you want. And a lot of what you think is good in education actually comes down to your political views. Hey everyone, this is YJ, your host for Bear Minds episode 22. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I aim to entertain as many different perspectives about as many different fields as possible. I'm hosting this conversation with Alexander Coward to gain a fresh perspective regarding how to approach education, startups, and everything in between. In case you didn't already know, Alexander Coward is a former lecturer of mathematics at UC Berkeley whose unorthodox but effective teaching style earned him a degree of notoriety among the UC Berkeley community. He earned his PhD in mathematics at Oxford University and quickly went on to hold positions as a lecturer at Oxford and Berkeley all by the time he hit the age of 30. After he left his position in 2016, he wasted no time in continuing his pursuit to spread the opportunity for people to independently learn from free online materials through startupedu.education. You can learn more about Alex, his startup, and everything else in the description. As always, thank you for listening, and make sure to hit that subscribe button for more Bear Minds. Here we go. The last time I checked... Uh, for the words uh, teaching or education in the title of a journal article, I found 1,089 results, which is like, if you were to read those papers one a day, every every day, it would take you 2,700 years. So nobody, nobody can understand all that. But what it does tell you is we, we have a very good understanding. We have a lot of knowledge about what helps people learn, what hinders people from learning, what the priorities are that we should be focusing on. And the challenge is not learning more about how to educate people. The, the, the challenge is actually implementing it. You know, it's a little bit like, it's, it's, it's a lot like public health. Right, we know with tremendous accuracy what are in broad strokes the things you need to do mm-hmm. to live healthily. Right, do some exercise, stop smoking, don't take drugs, um, eat fresh fruits and vegetables, limit your amount of sugar, limit your amount of, of trans fats, increase the omega 3s and the omega 9s, decrease the, the omega 6s. Um, and, and, and various other things. But, you know, if you go around in, in society, most people are completely aware that smoking is bad for you. Whether you're a smoker or whether you're not a smoker. You'd struggle to find somebody who didn't. Try to argue who didn't, didn't. Yeah, I mean, they might say, oh, my grandma, my grandma lived to 102 and she smoked all her life. They might make an argument like that. But, but really, really, most people are aware right. nowadays. Doesn't mean that everybody... Um, uh, uh, actually follows that advice and, and there are interest groups that, that are very keen on, on keeping people addicted. Um, the situation is, is the education system is like, it's almost like, you know, when you go into a school or a university, it's like going into a hospital where everybody, where all the doctors are handing out cigarettes, hmm. right? So if you look at the research base in education, and, and we've known this in one form or another, expressed in different ways. Going back a hundred years, you can look at you can look at um, the writings of John Dewey, who was uh, an American reformer ed- educator. Um, then going through to the work of Black and William on formative assessment, and then this big research uh, review done by by John Hattie in Australia on uh, called Visible Learning. They're all saying some version of. Um, 
some version of firing knowledge at people and testing them on it is not effective. And yet, that's exactly what we do. I was about to say that's exactly how I was raised. <laughs> exactly, you fire knowledge at people and then right. and then test them on it. Uh, you you may you know the the the, the amount of um, the amount of evidence that tells us that this is not not the way to do things is absolutely overwhelming. Why do you think we continue to do this? Because oh, now you're getting to the heart of the matter. Okay. Why is it that it's I, I think I think the reason is very simple. I think one of the things that comes through in the, the research, and is also true anecdotally, is that outcomes in education come much more from the quality of the teacher, mm-hmm. the individual person that you're, you're learning from, as opposed to the quality of the institution. So things that a teacher might do, using formative assessment, using advanced organisers, uh, uh, quality of rapport of the, between the student and the teacher, um, uh, uh, the, the teacher's fluency with language, stuff like that, whether, whether the teacher, teacher cares about their students high expectations for students. These things make quite a big difference. Things like public versus private, um, class size, um, single-sex versus co-ed, school uniforms, uh-huh. various types of technology you could be using. They make some difference. They don't make as much difference as as uh, these sort of teacher-level teacher, teacher level effects. And so the question arises... What is the consequence of the fact that outcomes are coming from the quality of the teacher, but people are choosing their provider at the level of the institution for four years at a time? Let me ask you the question. How good would your food be if you chose your food provider for four years at a time from a single provider? Well, it would, you'd expect to see certain things. You'd expect it to be really, really, really good on tasting day, the day that you go to taste the different yeah. food providers. be really, really good on that day. That's exactly what we see in higher education. Berkeley is amazing on Cal Day. Right? <laughs> the balloons out, Filipenko is giving a lecture, Robert Reich is giving a lecture. Even I gave a lecture on Cal Day. <laughs> They're very happy to wheel me out on, on Cal Day. And um, uh, you would also expect to see um, uh, a lot of attention paid to branding and marketing. Mm-hmm. which is exactly what you see, especially in the United States. And then finally, less obviously, you would expect to see quality control in both an upward and a downward direction. You'd expect to see quality control in an upward direction because if there are people who are really doing a terrible job, you know, like imagine, you know, somebody gets goes to McDonald's and they get sick and they go out and get sick in the street. That's really bad for the brand name. Right, same in, in the higher education system. If professors just started not turning up to class, um, that would be some people would do something about that. So there's quality control in the in the upward direction, but you also have quality control in the downward direction. It's a little bit like if you're on an airplane and there's really, really amazing food in seat thirty seven E. That's nice for the people person in seat thirty seven E, but everybody else is gonna get upset. Mm-hmm. Right? And so people come into places like Berkeley and many other places, and they have these wonderful high expectations, 
And what you tend to find is that particularly in those early freshman years, it's a very consistent product. It's like, it's rarely terrible. It's rarely amazing. It's like, it's just, it's okay. It's a little bit like the sort of food that you get on the buffet on a cruise ship, right? It's like, <laughs> it's not amazing, but it's okay, right? Most people's education in the elite higher education institutions in America is okay education. Because there's no incentive for it to be amazing. In fact, that's bad for the overall business model. And it's important for branding and marketing reasons that it's not absolutely catastrophically terrible. The bar of absolutely catastrophically terrible is a very low bar indeed, judging by, by, by some people. Um, and so there's the, there's the real, the real challenge because, um, it makes sense that education is organized into institutions because it's a very multifaceted thing. You're, when you go to college, you're looking for not just somebody to teach you one subject. You want some you know, different people to teach you different subjects. You want a community, you want food, accommodation, sports team, counseling, right. you know, the whole package. branding. Yeah. yeah. You want, you want it all together, just like a package holiday. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's, uh, that's where the real challenge is when you're working and trying to reform education is that it needs to, it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, all these things should be separated out. But the truth of the matter is you don't really want to go to 30 different providers to get the 30 different things that Berkeley is, is providing you when you actually write it all down, all these different services that you, you, need, you need from time to time. Right. So how do you, how do you increase quality? Um, you know, sort of bring, bring to bear the fact that there needs to be more choice uh, at the same time as recognizing that people need some sort of overall integrity of what they're, they're working on. Now there, I mean, there are people, there are politicians, Bernie Sanders, uh, who say the alternative would be free public education for everyone, and that would bring up the quality of education, or at least quantity of education, in the country. And the end goal, the end, the the end for that would be a more educated population. Do you agree with that? I I, I actually I I not broadly speaking. Um, I don't, there's nothing in that I, I, I strongly disagree with. I, I think... Yeah, yeah, I, I roughly agree with that. The thing, the, area, the, the thing that comes to my mind when I hear stuff like this is... is... Well, there's this idea that the people who go to Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, and so forth are the lucky ones in our system. They get a great education, and then the 66% of Americans who, who, who don't have a college degree are somehow unlucky, and we need to help the two-thirds of Americans who, who don't have a college degree become more like the, the one-third who, who do. That's mm. the sort of the assumption in what, what Bernie Sanders is, is saying. And I think that's that's... It's, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I think one of the things you see in, in trying to improve 
education in a society in general, and this is particularly the case in developing countries, is you have to have a community of, of teachers before you can expand the education system, right? You know, you, you can't go into a, a developing country, and in some ways, American ed- educational field is a developing country. It has all the hallmarks of being a developing country. Uh, I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, you can't just sort of say, I'm going to spend a lot of money and create an educated society because who are going to be the teachers? Who are going to be the professors? Where, you go, where are they going to get educated? Well, if you don't have any schools or, or universities to begin with that are providing good education, then you have to send them abroad. Well, then you send them abroad, <laughs> and then they might like it there. And, and, then, and, then, and how do you get them to come back? Uh, and, and so forth. So it, it, it's, it's not... The, 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 it's, it's a little naive just to say that if we just spent the money, we could have, we could have more higher education. And the trouble is, even when you look at the elite institutions, the Berkeley's, the Harvard's, the Stanford's, the Yale's, are those people really getting a world-class education, or are they just getting an okay education? And I think... I, I, I was very lucky in my childhood and in my education. I had a few, a few experiences of really world-class education, like like world-class, world-class, uh, which is why I sort of felt like that was what I wanted to do. You know, it's not like I I went to college and there were these sort of very poor quality teachers who didn't really care and I thought I want to be like you that wasn't like at all I mean there are people who 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 changed my life and changed the way I I, I looked at the world and were, were transformative and some of them were I knew in an official student teacher capacity some of them were people in my family some of them were people I, I just I just I just know and it's a little bit like um, if you've ever tasted really, really amazing wine, you just can't go back to drink, drinking the $2 wine from Safeway. It's, just, <laughs> it's, you, it's, it's heartbreaking to see. My, my mind is wandering to, to these, these examples. I, I think the normal experience for a lot of students in the United States, including ones who go to the elite universities, is to never experience great education. Not even once. Like, never. That's, I mean, that's really surprising. Because, well, I, I, I want to go deeper into that. What is great education versus mediocre, okay education? The assumption is when it's you go to these institutions, it's a lot of food. It's a lot of things. Let's break it down. Okay, so let's, let's try and define what, what what the outcomes are for the students. Right? So you say, well, you know, and the trouble is that everybody disagrees about what what sort of outcomes you you want, and a lot of what you think is good in education actually comes down to your political views mm. right you know so if you look in society there are some people who who are more authoritarian in their their, their view of things 
and there are other people who are more sort of freewheeling and sort of think people should go off and decide what they want to do for themselves, figure things out. And a lot of the disagreements you see in how educational systems, in the people's views about how educational systems should be structured, correlate quite closely to disagreements about the views about how society is, should, be, should be structured, right? Do you think that there should be a powerful leader who tells everybody what to do, or do you think the power should somehow come from the bottom up? Uh-huh. And there's, there seems to me to be some sort of correlation between people who are authoritarian in the political sphere but, and, and people who are authoritarian in the educational sphere. And so everybody everybody disagrees about what, what we're aiming for. And so how can you, how can you somehow um, bring some rigorous thinking to this in, in a way that everybody can agree upon? And I think... I think I thought about this for quite a long time, and I think there are two natural axes to divide the educational outcomes along. The first is to ask about the timescale of when the outcome is going to take place. So is it a short-term outcome, which is taking place when you're in that course or working with that teacher, or is it something that is going to linger long beyond your, that, that particular moment in time, Maybe for the rest of your life. Maybe even not just for your life, but your children and the people who know you. So this is sort of short-term, long-term distinction. Um, example of the short-term is you cram for the test the night before. You memorize some stuff, and by the following afternoon, you've forgotten it again. Uh, and then there are long-term things. Like maybe maybe you can see up there, there is just the, the loud sir, which is you know, some, something cool. Um, Bit of, bit of scripture, that which shrinks must first expand, you know, and, 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 and so forth. This used to sit in the toilet of my grandparents' house when I was, when I was growing up. And so when I was sitting and pooping, this would be staring at me. And they, they both passed away now. Um, but, you know, now, now it's there up on the mantel shelf. And in hard times, I have thought about that. And, and then there's another distinction, which I think is also important which is the difference between a tangible outcome and an intangible outcome. Uh, so a tangible outcome might be like your, like your grade, um, your GPA, whether or not you get a job after graduating, whether or not you graduate, your income after school, something that is sort of measurable that you can do a scientific study on. And some people would, would say that, that those are the only things that count. They think there are things which are very difficult to describe that are really important but are intangible and, and therefore difficult to talk about. If if a if a if a teacher is some somehow sort of a little bit mean to a child, somehow unkind. Even if they don't do anything explicitly wrong that you could point to, if, just, if they just don't really have the, the interests of a child at heart, the child will pick up on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you've, you've, you've had this with people that you've met. You can sort of tell if there's a bit of fakeness or not. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like some, some people, you, you walk into, into their, their presence and you just feel sort of it's like a healing a healing sort of effect that they have on the people around them 
and other people are somehow, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands on end. You feel a little bit nervous. Your your heart rate goes up by five beats a minute. The cortisol levels spike just a little bit. Why? They're being perfectly nice, but 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 somehow it's 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 not quite. Somehow there's something not quite right. Somehow you have this feeling of lack of genuine... Yeah, um, it's very difficult to describe. Yeah, feeling of lack of genuine, something not exactly wholesome. And sometimes these these sort of intangible things can linger on for years. You know, whether or not somebody has a feeling like they are... that, That voice in one's mind that is sort of reassuring and sort of saying... You might be going through difficult times now, but press ahead, you'll get through it. Even if it's not even words, if it's just a sort of a an attitude to life, a sense of hopefulness in difficult times, uh, 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 an ability to connect with, with other people in an authentic way, um, an ability to form good, good relationships with, with friends or colleagues and, and romantic partners. Very difficult to, to measure that sort of sense of gen, of well-being. The extent to which you enjoy eating breakfast, whether you actually enjoy your breakfast or whether you just eat your breakfast without even noticing it. Yeah? You would be very difficult to do a study on this. Yeah. But there's an experiential nature, like looking at a view or listening to a piece of music or, 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 or having a nice conversation with somebody. And... What's interesting is giving it a score, measuring it, is somehow dis- distorts it. It's, 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 that there are these intangible aspects, and so no matter where you, no matter where you are in your views of, of what education should look like, that's something we can all agree upon. There are short-term outcomes and there are long-term outcomes. There are tangible outcomes and there are intangible outcomes. And this is very clarifying. That's just simple logic, mm-hmm. right? That's a little bit like we're going to study life on Earth. Life on Earth is very, very complicated. We, you know, we don't know about DNA yet. We don't know about evolution yet. Well, let's study the things that are green, that have some green in them, and we'll call those plants, and let's figure out why they're green, and then let's study the other things. Let's just look at the things that are green. Either it's green or not, right? And that's, you know, it's a this very clean way of, of slicing and dicing. And then you can say, well, what are the things that are, where are we focusing our attention? And if what I care about is the short-term tangible outcomes, which is how well you're going to do in a test tomorrow morning, mm-hmm. then, then that's fine. Maybe that, that, that isn't something that you should neglect. If I'm teaching you about continuity of, of functions, maybe you took Math 1A, I do actually want you to be able to tell me accurately and reliably what does it mean to say that a function f from the real numbers to the real numbers is continuous at a. I shouldn't neglect that. But there are also these long-term effects and these, these intangible effects. And I, I think we, we neglect those things at our peril. At our peril. I mean, I'll, I'll expand more, and this really gets political, right? You oh, want right. to measure people. You want to put people on a hierarchy. 
you want to say that there's there are people and they're sort of arranged from the top to the bottom and the top are the people who go to Harvard and get a, a 4.0 and then it's sort of downhill from from there. And there's this idea of of, of a meritocracy that you put the people you know the people at the top um, somehow should have better lives and have more power and influence and wealth because they deserve it. If you go back to the early 20th century, people were talking about very similar things in, that, that led up to the eugenics movement. Oh, you know, this okay. idea that, you know, that there, there's such a thing as evolution, evolution is survival of the fittest, and what happened in the eugenics movement is the idea of evolution turned from being a scientific theory into being a, an ethical framework. It's not just we see in nature survival of the fittest, but Another step which says, and therefore, that's the way that the world is meant to be. That's very dangerous. That's, yeah. that's very dangerous. And I, I, I really fear for where we are right, right now in that regard. Do you get the feeling that we're, we're experiencing that cycle once again? Absolutely. I mean, in this political climate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not just in America, not just in... Um, yeah, absolutely. Not not just in America, but but all around the world, and in many subtle ways, which people aren't really questioning. There's, you, you you might you might um, if you were to just put it very simply, I'm not an old man. I'm only I'm only thirty five. But I'm old enough that I can remember a little bit of history. One of the nice things my grandma always told me is the nice thing about being old is you can remember history. And I can't remember much history, but I can remember some. And maybe it's just that I've gotten older, I've had more life experience, but I just feel like there's more hatred in the air now than there used to be. More suspicion, more trend, a more transactionary way of approaching life. So... I finished teaching at Berkeley in the fall, no, in the in the summer of 2016, a bit more than, than a year ago, and I knew it was coming because I'd tried to stay and filed a grievance and everything, and and that didn't work, and that sucks, and so I had a bit of time to sort of think about what I wanted to do afterwards. And I basically concluded that I just wanted to stay in Berkeley and carry on teaching. And I had this naive idea of setting up shop across the street, like literally across the street. I don't know if you know the old games of Berkeley. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it's right on Telegraph. Well, it's like University in Chatham, roughly. Yeah. No, University. No, no. Right in downtown, over the street from Bath, right? I thought, yeah, wouldn't yeah. it be cool to like rent out that space now that games of Berkeley isn't there anymore and like get a bunch of chairs and start teaching Math 1A? And if I can teach <laughs> Math 1A better than the, the person who's officially teaching Math 1A, then students will come to me. I don't. Students don't need to pay very much at all if if I've got five hundred students, and I'll just do that. I just, it was just this naive idea. Of course, I knew that that was a complete fantasy, right? But that was sort of the the fantasy that popped into my head. Wouldn't it be cool if 
if I could just just carry on teaching lots of students like the way that I teach math. Not not all of them, I should add, but but a lot do. Wouldn't it be cool if I could just like set up set up shop? In the exact same way that if I have a spare room in my house, I can I can turn my house into uh, a hotel, or if I have a spare car and some time, I can turn my car into a taxi service. Why can't I take my expertise and just turn it into a school? Mm-hmm. Just jump in, help people get educated. Not doing like SAT coaching, tutoring, but actual teaching. You understand? It turns out that it's it's really, really, really hard to do that. And there are many, many, many difficulties. One is it's very difficult to find a venue to do that sort of classroom teaching. There are regulatory hurdles you have to get through, particularly in K through 12. And you know, let's be honest, a lot of students who are taking classes are not taking it because they really want to learn that subject because they need the line on the transcript, they need the requirement for their major, they want the piece of paper. And the piece of paper is really valuable in the society that we live in. You know, I, would, yeah. I would be very cautious about advising anybody to say, oh, a piece of paper is, is, um, is, is, is not important. And so it seemed to me that in order to create a world where someone like me and the many people who really enjoy teaching and are good at it, where, where people like, like me can just set up shop and start teaching, the first thing to address is not the venue, it's not the regulatory stuff, it's you need to find a way of giving somebody something that they can show to the world, which has value and is respected, even if the person who's providing that education has no brand name. Mm-hmm. So that was what, that was the thinking behind building the portfolio-based college transcript, which we launched in May. To begin with, just for Berkeley students. And now we recently upgraded it so that you can share work from any course done at any school, either online or, or in person from, from anywhere in the world. And it looks really nice. You can sort of see all the classes you've done. Each each class sort of opens up and you can look through the, through the work. That's just the, the sort of the first step. The, the intention is that EDU... What what we're building with EDU is a decentralized university. Okay. In the same sense that Airbnb is a decentralized hotel. And every university needs a degree certificate. But if it's decentralized, you can't you can't give a degree certificate because a degree certificate is a centralized bestowment of credit, which doesn't work if it's decentralized. So how can you build a decentralized degree certificate? Well, it has to be something where the student, maybe under the mentorship of a teacher that they're working with locally, not under close centralized management, are able to work together to put together. Just like if you're a graphic designer, Mm -hmm. 
you can share your work on Dribble or Behance, just like if you're a software engineer, you can share your work on, on GitHub. If you stay in your sweatpants for a few years and study online courses and go to the library and build a community around you and get help when you need help, and you don't pay anything other than, than, than you know, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, and coffee shops, and right. you know, you just put it all together for yourself. Right now, you don't. There's no way to actually get any credit for that work. And with with EDU, um, there is. You can you can put you can take a class online through, for example, MIT Open Courseware. You could you know all the lectures are there on YouTube. You can watch those 43 hours of lectures and take careful notes and share your notes. You can do all 17 problem sets and write down your solutions to all of those problem sets and share those. And then somebody can look at that, and you don't have a certificate per se, but you can look at the work that they've done in that person's handwriting and get a sense that this is not educational vaporware. Somebody, you know, if you look at a hundred pages of handwritten notes, you can't fake that very easily. And it sort of orients you as a learner to sort of think, I, 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 I actually have to find a way of proving to the world that I understand this. And that's not perfectly correlated with actually learning it, but it's quite well correlated with actually learning it. If I say, I want you to find a way of proving to the world that you understand data structures. <laughs> In order for you to figure out how to do that, you actually have to understand data structures. Right. It's very difficult to be able to do that without actually understanding the, the underlying material. So that's the first step. The second step is, you know, the, the world I would like to be in the future is one where anywhere in the world you can find community to, to, to study study from these, these online courses. You can find mentorship from knowledgeable, highly educated people who can help you when you get stuck and help you pick out what are the best books, what are the best resources to, to read. Um, in, in other words, where all of the all of the the things that universities provide are available from numerous different providers. And if you're a new provider, you just you literally just set up shop and start providing education. And the business model is such that it's affordable from the point of view of the student, and it's a way to make a living if you're doing it full time from the point of view of a teacher, or supplement your income if you're doing it part time. So how is this uh, different to things like Udacity or General Assembly? Well, I, I could answer that question. The, the first thing to say though is the how is this different to question you hear a lot and one should be a little bit cautious of that because you can ask the question how is Facebook different to LinkedIn uh-huh. and the answer is they're almost exactly the same <laughs> Facebook is blue and grey LinkedIn is green and grey they, the they both have a news feed, they both have a way of messaging other users, they both have biographic information, they both have a way of making a post, they both have ways of commenting on posts and liking posts. Things can go viral on Facebook, things can go viral on LinkedIn, things can be shared. And you could say, well, maybe there are some slightly different features on LinkedIn, there's stuff that's to do with hiring that you can do on LinkedIn, whereas there's stuff to do with um, events and, and stuff on Facebook. 
that's not really the answer. The answer is really that the emergent culture has formed in LinkedIn. You can share pictures of what you did this weekend on LinkedIn, and you can try to like find a job on Facebook. But it would just be a little bit weird. <laughs> and, and so what you see is... Um, what you see is that it doesn't. Things don't have to be very different for actually the way that that, that the impact that they have on society to be, to be very different. That's a high level answer to the how is this different to Udacity. The way the way it's different to Udacity is it's is it decentralized. Udacity is centralized. All of the courses are made there in the the, the Udacity headquarters. I think it's in, in Sunnyvale. Um, and that's that's not what we're planning on doing. And with, so, with Udacity, you get this Udacity Nano degree, which is yeah. supposed to certify that you did something. Yeah. With EDU, you get a place where you can display your portfolio, the actual work that you've done. Yeah, and and that is completely for free for everybody. Uh-huh. So it's it's a way for, and that I think will always be free. We don't we don't want to make money out of that. Right. If you if you have just spent two or three years going to the library, reading the books, getting help when you need help, piecemealing your education together so that you are as educated as somebody who, who got a degree from a fancy university, you should be able to have the similar level of opportunities mm. that, 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 that is yeah. contingent on that education. Of course... Of course, there's branding and networking and, and stuff, which it's hard to get that way. But let's start somewhere. Right? Let's, you know, if you have actually learned computer science to the standard of somebody who has a CS degree from Berkeley, and you know all the stuff, but you don't have, there should be some way you can prove that, which is not a quarter of a million dollar piece of paper. And that's what, that's what we've built so far. What, what are some of the challenges you've had so far? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, entrepreneurship is, is terribly difficult for all kinds of reasons and, and I don't think I'm a particularly good entrepreneur I think I'm a really good math teacher I don't think I'm a, a I think I'm, I'm an okay entrepreneur I don't think I'm an amazing entrepreneur I, I find it I find it hard uh, um, man, what are the challenges I've faced? Feeling like a loser. Um, I think it's quite good to go through t- periods of your life where you feel like a loser. You learn a lot of humility. You know, you know what? What are you doing? Oh, I just I just lost my job at Berkeley. Oh, I see. So you're like a failed academic then. Well, <laughs> please don't say that. Uh, uh, you know. What are you working on? Ah, uh, I'm still figuring it out. Uh, have you raised any money yet? Ah, uh, no, working on that. What's your team like? Ah, uh, there's a couple of undergrads who are helping me. You know, so you can you can really feel like a loser in the early early days. I actually think it's better to feel like a loser in the early days than to feel like you've got it all figured out. Certainly, when I was younger, in my early twenties, mid twenties, my life was was really going like right according to plan, and um, 
you know when you think everything's going swimmingly according to plan that you're 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 setting yourself up for for, for trouble. It constantly changes. So you know, one minute, one minute. Oh, we're trying to launch something. I got to I got to I got to stare at JavaScript and make sure all the code is is working. And the next minute, you're talking to people. Next minute, you're talking to to customers or investors. Next minute, you're thinking about graphic design. Next minute, you're thinking about corporate law. Next minute, you're thinking about finance. Next minute. It's like some admin stuff. Next minute, it's like some legal thing you have to comply with, and so it's like, it's like, it's like, and and it just, it just, it's just another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing, which makes it very interesting. I've learned an enormous amount, but that opportunity to sort of really think deeply about stuff is, I really, I really miss it. Actually, I miss, I miss having the time to really. Digest things. Is it something to make the most of? You know, make the most of time off. Um, I don't know. It's scary. It's scary because you don't know if it will succeed, right? The statistics are very unflattering. uh, The expected value is pretty much zero. Yeah, you know, you 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 have to be very comfortable with failure. I can say though, I don't. I think we've. I've got to the stage. I used to do a lot of mentoring of entrepreneurs, friends, and students and stuff. I still do. And I think the measure of success. This is my advice to any entrepreneurs out there. Is you should be. You should. You know, there's this idea that if you're successful, you're successful if you make an exit. Right. That's success. You, you have your company acquired, hopefully for a lot of money. Or you have an IPO, hopefully you make a lot of money, and that's what success means. And the opposite of success is you somehow had to wind up your company and dismantle it. I don't think that's what. So there's like failure, and then there's success, and then there's different extents to which you can be successful. I think there's a different measure. I think success is creating something which is doing... Which is, which is of value, even a little bit of value, to at least one person who's not yourself and not associated with your company. Whether they're paid for or whether it's, it's free, creating some value that somebody else can experience. Because if you're creating value, what, um, for somebody else, you can at least say to yourself, you know, I worked really, really hard for these, these five customers to... Yeah. To benefit, but there's something wor- very, very worthwhile about working incredibly hard for marginal benefit of somebody else. And when you have that mindset that what you're doing is about creating something of value to someone else, it makes it much easier to feel like a winner. Like I can say, there are some people. We're early stage, so we haven't really scaled. But there are some people who are right now sharing the work that they've done not through a traditional provider and are trying to get a job with their portfolio. There are people who I am teaching math to who are learning mathematics and have a mechanism of of recording what they've learned and showing it to the world right now. Not very many. And 
I think I think that that really is helpful because you get to sort of feel good about yourself when you when you uh, uh, yeah you get to feel good about yourself when you when you do stuff that is, is valuable. Yeah, you're contributing to society and to a greater extent than you would if you were just focused solely on, on the exit, solely yeah, on the exactly. income. Yeah, it's right. like this. You make this podcast, right? Yeah. And and then somebody says to you, oh, I listen to, I listen to this podcast. Yeah. I listen to this podcast every week. Greatest feeling I, ever. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love your podcast. You must have had this already. Yeah. It's like, wow, that, that like made it worthwhile. Uh, I don't know what it is. Asking, asking um, like, what how's your company doing um what are the challenges you face uh, it's like asking how your boyfriend or girlfriend is doing you can sort of say oh yeah she's doing great she's doing great we're going to great everything's great you know if somebody's really going to give an honest answer they would be they would be going into into a lot of stuff to do with your psychology, your personal psychology, your childhood, motivation, you know, or, or the whole, the whole, if you're, if you're, you know, founding a company is, is like such a, an act of like personal expression. The truth is that what happens with, with founders, I think the successful founders, they have a certain life experience, not just their own lives, but, but that where they've grown up and their parents and grandparents and ancestors and it's sort of it, it goes into a sort of a melting pot and then what happens is somehow something emerges which is sort of the result of all of that experience so when I'm when I'm working on, on EDU you know I'm thinking about my my childhood some of the time and the, the amazing teachers I'd had, and some of the, the negative experiences I'd had. I'm thinking about what happened to me at Berkeley and which 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 was unpleasant and then realizing, oh, that actually happened to a lot of people. There are a lot of really, really, really great teachers who students love to learn from who one way or another just get ejected for, for political reasons. Um... Uh, uh, and so I think I think another another thing to say about entrepreneurship is it's really important to have some awareness of where your motivation is coming from, and it's okay if it's oh it's to do with what my childhood and what happened, you know, and, and my parents and and my grandparents and this experience I had and this other experience I had. That's all cool. But then you should sort of double check yourself to make sure that the way that that experience is 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 expressing itself is is somehow wholesome in nature. So in other words, you see you had an experience early on where you saw some injustice, you saw some suffering, and it sort of shook, shakes you to your core. I was, I mean, I was shaken to my core at Berkeley. Like, because I thought it was an elite institution, and this statistic of one in a hundred 
students of Berkeley. Um, one in a hundred students on US campuses attempting suicide. I taught about 4,200 students when I was at Berkeley over three years. That means I should expect that 42 of my students, according to that statistic, will attempt suicide during their time at college. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, these are people who I know. Right? I can't talk about it for obvious reasons. But when you see stuff like that, it it's so sort of appalling that you sort of you, it's difficult to let let go of it afterwards. And I think that kind of motivation, you see that and you think, okay, I understand where my motivation is coming from. I want to try and do something about it. No one person can actually, you know, not even people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Barack Obama and Angela Merkel and Margaret, not even those people can single-handedly change things. But, you know, it gives you a sort of a sense of purpose. That's very different to, oh, I had this experience and I'm angry about it and I want revenge. And so I think because because the way all of the details about how things emerge are different depending upon what the motivation is. This was the big thing that I learned. You know, the big change in the way that I think about ethics between when I was in my mid twenties and now when I'm in my mid thirties is I used to think it was all about the outcomes, and now I think it's really important to think about your intentions. Mm. And sometimes you can have good intention and. For one reason or another, you screw up. Everybody screws up from time to time. But if you if you if you genuinely want good for the world, if you genuinely care about the interests of others, and then you do something that's well intentioned and it doesn't work out that well, I think that's much better than wanting, you know, having sort of angry motivation. Even if the angry motivation results in a good outcome, that's you know. So I don't agree with this, uh, this phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think, I think good intentions are, are crucial. It's important to evaluate your, your motivation. So I'm, I'm sort of, it's very rambly. So you can sort of see, I mean, you know, like this, the way I, I'm talking about this, and I'm not saying, oh, this is what the company does. Oh, this is, this is, this is, how the education world will be. This is why EDU is going to do to um, education, what Amazon has done to retail. It's going to be this amazing platform, right? Because that's a consequence of something else. It's sort of the, the your, 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 um, Your experience. I'll give you a great example, right? Okay. Look at look at Barack Obama, past healthcare, right? Yeah. Thankfully, we still we still have a healthcare law. Now, his mother died. I believe she was forty four years old. I'm not sure about that, but she was pretty young of breast cancer. He was pretty close with his mother, and she spent her dying months, according to what he said, arguing with insurance companies. You can imagine what sort of effect that that has on you, how traumatizing that has. You would not wish that on your worst enemy, mm-hmm. either to, to die of breast cancer or for a family member, your mother, to die of breast cancer. But if something like that happens, you can spend your time being angry. 
Or you can do what Obama says. You know what I'm going to do? It's a crazy idea. I'm going to run for office. I'm going to become president of the United States. I'm going to like use the talents of speaking and persuading people that I, I've been blessed with. And I'm going to try and pass a health care law so that this doesn't happen again. And a lot of people think that way, and most of them fail, and that's okay. In other words, you can sort of, you know, look at what people did when they're on the, on the Titanic after the iceberg has been struck. You can sort of, there are some crazy people who decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to grab a wrench and I'm going to run down into the bilges and try and fix the hole in the boat, <laughs> right? And that's a completely crazy thing to do. But every now and then somebody does something like, and they, like that and they succeed. And the only way you can be crazy enough to try to do something like that is to have had an experience like having your mother die at the age of 44 and spend her dying year, dying months arguing with insurance companies. It has to get <clears throat> right to the core of your being if you want to have enough perseverance to actually, actually do it. And so what that means is that one should look very honestly at the experiences that you've had and say, what is the stuff that I've gone through, which may not always be very pleasant, that I can somehow use as a generator of, of energy and then make absolutely sure that you are somehow expressing that energy in a creative way and not a destructive way, right? It's really, really important if you want to do something about healthcare reform to make sure that you're thinking about helping more people get access to insurance rather than how to get revenge on the insurance companies. Right, yeah. Right? And the whole way you think about it will be different. Right? So, you know, and, and that, that's a challenge for me, you know. It's, it's, it's not about tearing down the existing system. Right? Even though the existing system is flawed. It's about finding ways that you can... Make, make the world better, even if that, that actually helps people who you think are, have not, not always done the best, the best thing. Um, uh, uh, uh. I don't know if this is all, if this is interesting or if I'm just rambling. No, it is interesting because at least within Berkeley, which is what I know, the Berkeley entrepreneurship ecosystem, um, People are sort of trained to start with the outcome, start with, you know, people don't necessarily look at entrepreneurship the way that you look at it, you look at it, which is, you know, you begin with the intention of bettering the world somehow because of a, in, maybe an injustice that you face so, sometime earlier on. You know, like, it, the flip side is a lot of people come out, you know, with, with the with the outcome in mind, like, uh, I want to have a billion dollar exit. How am I going to do that? Another photo sharing app and we'll put, Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. how much is that really furthering the baseline for humanity? Um, is how you would look at it. But uh, it, yeah. it's unfortunate that not too many people look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think wanting that billion dollar exit, it's a little bit like wanting to be happy. <laughs> you know, like you know, you can if you spend all of your yeah. time thinking I want to be happy, um, you you end up thinking like, oh, how happy am I? Oh, how happy am I? How, how much happiness did this thing I bought get me? How much happiness did did this this interaction I have yeah. make me? 
and you end up feeling miserable. You're constantly chasing the next thing, and eventually, now then I'll be enough. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And people who are not really worrying about how happy they are often are actually, in fact, much happier. So, and I think it's a little bit like that with entrepreneurship. You, know, you want money, you want the, the, the success and everything. And it just takes you out of the moment. Like, what are you actually going to do today? You know, so one, it's not to say that one shouldn't be strategic and make plans and, and think deeply, but it's not the place to start. The biggest surprise of my, my adult life is I used to be a very sort of strong atheist. Richard Dawkins style um, uh, atheist. And now I um, I guess I'm a practicing Buddhist. Huh. Uh, which is very surprising to me. <laughs> but somehow you're you know, it like 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 me becoming a Buddhist is like some Playboy who's always tra- chasing women, like turning out to be gay, right? I mean, it's like it's like the biggest surprise. So, do you believe uh, in reincarnation and the constant cyclical? I mean, the trouble is the way you're, you these he, that question is framed is again with a it has a there's either reincarnation or there's not. Uh-huh. There's a, there, you know statements are either true or false. Either reincarnation exists or it doesn't, and. The basis of excellent book, by the way, The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, who sort of talks about this. The basis of a lot of Eastern philosophy is to reject that idea that statements are true or false. To to try and capture the world in a way that is somehow more poetic. Um, so, in other words, in other words, you know, do I believe in in, in reincarnation? It's like uh, it it it's it's a very sort of it it's not it's 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 it does it's not really something that should be looked at with language or analysis and all of this stuff is um, uh I, I don't know. It's, it's very hard to talk about. It's, just like it's, not, it's not really language. I, there's a lot of... Like, all of the stuff that people think is crazy is not... You would not call it a belief because a belief is like a statement about the world that I think is true. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I think... There's a lot of people, maybe you're one of them, who have a sort of an intuition about the world, which is deeply personal, which is not really a statement of truth. It's just a statement of sort of personal experience. I'll give an example. For me, the number two is blue. Right? I'm not actually saying the number two is objectively blue. Right? I'm just saying when I think of the number two, it's blue. Oh, you have the... It's not synesthesia. Okay. It's just... Just the number two. It's just... I don't know why. I just It's just an association that the, the two is blue. And I like it, by the way. I like the number two, and I like the color blue. And think, for me personally, it's a good number and a good color. Right? 
And I've talked to a lot of students about like the way that they experience mathematics and the way that things are put together. And a lot of the time people have these, 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 uh, ways of experiencing things which are not entirely respectable because people are worried that people will think it's crazy. Like there was one person who told me that when she was in school, she really liked factoring numbers because they went from being round to being spiky. <laughs> right? What does that mean? Well, you know, it's just a sort of a feeling that one has. And some people, like when I say this to people, some people go, oh yes, I have all of these sorts of wacky feelings. I don't talk about it very often because people think I'm crazy. But this is like my daily existence is sort of filled with this sort of personal experience that yeah. is specific to me. And um, and other people are don't seem to really have that have their personality, their experience is, is much more it's not so wacky, it doesn't have these wacky things. In other words the unusual, interesting individual things that make people unique and fascinating, I think, are not beliefs and focusing on beliefs is a mistake because a belief is a statement about the world that can be true or it can be false. And as soon as you have one person with one belief and another person with another belief that are inconsistent because one person believes it's true and the other person believes it's false and everybody knows that true and false can't be can't possibly be, be the case. Then suddenly you have the opportunity to get into into um, into conflicts. And then you know, oh, somebody believes something, everybody thinks it's crazy. And then people who believe crazy things get sent to psychiatric institutions. And then they are either you know either ir- irrational religious people, or they are you know unenlightened philistinic uh, philistine atheists, or they're crazy, or whatever. It's not. It's not helpful to say to, to focus too much on beliefs we should focus on our experience and we should focus on objective facts uh, yeah what's the next question well what's the worst advice you see being dispensed in your field the field of education or the field of math or the field of entrepreneurship well, i see i guess yeah your field has kind of changed quite a lot so okay i'll answer all of them yeah okay. sure the the I think it's better to, to, to look at. Um, I, I I'd rather I'd rather say who I who I what I think is is good advice, which is to really recognise that everybody's different, right? So I know what is for me good advice. The way that I work well in the world, the way that makes you know the way of approaching life that makes me happy and successful is. Um, very different to the way that might make you happy and successful or the next person happy and successful and there are lots of lots of different approaches and lots of approaches that would sound crazy to somebody who, who didn't work and you know experience the world in that way and so I think good advice is to sort of look around and try to find people who have are like a successful version of you, right? So, so you find enough commonality that you think 
I, I get where they're coming from, and then see what are the things that those people are doing. And then, you know, if you see somebody who's giving out advice that is not what you agree with, that's okay. Um, uh, that's okay. Um, maybe that would be, be good advice for some people. In other words, it's, it's an observation I've made that most advice in the world tends to be of the form, you should be more like me. <laughs> and when you hear advice that is translated as, you should be more like me, then you should ask the question, it might be a good idea to ask the question, do, do you want to be more like that person? And then you have a choice. So be careful of that, you should be more like me type of advice. Yes. Um, all right, last, last question. If mm. you could gift three books to every graduating senior in college or high school, uh, what would they be? Um, I don't want to do that because I, I, I am disgusted by the idea of everybody reading the same three books. Okay. I would not want everybody to read the same three books. I would want people to read well, different books. Right? <laughs> I can tell you the three books that have changed my life the most. Okay. That have had the most profound impact on me. And they were. Ethics from the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. And all of the books that I've read by Eric Fromm, uh, which, are, which are Escape from Freedom, The Art of Loving, Psychoanalysis and Zen Buddhism, and I'm right now reading The Sane Society. And if I had to name one author who I think people should be reading about right now, it is Eric Fromm. And... The reason is that he was a social psychologist writing during and after World War II, explaining, among other things, the social psychological appeal for authoritarianism and fascism. And this is uh, a very important thing for people to start to understand today. And I, I think he's... Um, uh, somebody who I, I would certainly encourage people who, who want to understand the world to read, especially Escape from Freedom, which expands a lot about the stuff to do with destructiveness versus creativeness and many other things. Um, so Escape from Freedom by Eric Fromm is at the top of the list in today's climate but, but, but many other books as well alright yeah this has been a great pleasure as always that was Bear Minds Podcast make sure to subscribe for more interviews with professors researchers entrepreneurs and more from UC Berkeley subscribe to us on iTunes Google Play or Stitcher or just visit our website at bearmindspodcast.com to make sure you can stay up to date with the interviews as always thank you so much for listening i hope 
you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, take it easy. See ya.